millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. The show is now one year old, and this is a happy birthday podcast. To celebrate, I'm sharing some of the details of the show, how it works, who's listening, and I'll also share some of the top shows by downloads and We'll do a little highlight reel explaining my favorite moments of the past year, as well as some of the things you never get to hear, like a few bloopers and outtakes. What a year it has been. When I started the show, I had hoped that a few people might listen, and I had no idea that it would connect me with new friends and colleagues all over the world. I also had no idea that Julian Fellows and HBO were producing a show called The Gilded Age that would conveniently be released in early 2022. By March of that year... The podcast was attracting 13,000 downloads a month, a figure that is beyond my wildest dreams. I've also heard from professors in higher education that they're using the show in the classroom, which is also a great honor. Amazingly, the show has been downloaded in 88 countries, although given the focus on the United States, almost 88% of listeners come from that country. The fact that all episodes are in English also mean that the Anglosphere has the strongest showing, with the UK, Canada, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand making up nearly 10% of the listenership. The most popular shows were also the most topical. The very first show, The Last Flu Pandemic, which was an episode about the Spanish flu or the Great Flu of 1918, was the most popular show to date. It was popular probably also because Professor Chris Nichols is very accessible, and he joined me to talk about his ongoing research on the Great Flu. He also came back for a roundtable later in the year with Madalena Marinari and David Hoosen about the way that pandemics end. So what I thought I would do is I would play a clip from the first show where Chris Nichols makes a rather interesting point about the pandemic. Back in 1918, or 19, there wasn't a vaccine, was there? No, but actually, it's, it's sort of interesting. No, but yes, or yes, but no. The classic historian's answer, right? Um, so there was a race for vaccines. They knew about vaccines. You know, I like to argue that there's you might call it an inoculation tradition in, in American uh, society and medicine. So going back, you know, we know Ben Franklin, for instance, famously just lamented for the whole rest of his life that he hadn't had his son, who died at the age of three, um, inoculated against smallpox. You know, famously George Washington forced all uh, incoming troops into the Revolutionary Army to be inoculated and sent smallpox immune troops to occupy Boston when there was a 
smallpox outbreak. And I could go on and on. We could just have a, we could spend the whole podcast on that. So look, American politicians, American citizens have known for a long time, inoculation, vaccination, they're not quite the same thing, but damn close, uh, you know, uh, it has been a thing in American society to prevent, you know, the worst kinds of outbreaks. Um, so, you know, uh, there was a search in 1918 for a vaccine or for a way to create, to take live virus, get it into bodies. So that would be like an inoculation and then prevent, you know, uh, get some kind of immune uh, system response. Right. So they had that sense germ theory. Then it wasn't viral theory. You don't get, you know, um, that until the forties until uh, the world war two context. Um, but uh, so they raced to get these vaccines made. Um, they're, they're actually a train speeds across the country to try to inoculate um, troops being inducted into the army on the West coast, none of these vaccines that are developed, and there are a number of them are effective. Public health officials keep trying to, to say, look, we're, we're modern medicine, you know, is going to tr find some cures and treatments for this disease. We're hoping the vaccines will work. And then public health officials push back and say, wait, we're not seeing that they're very effective. They come into drugstores, drugstores try to sell them. Um, you know, then there's some quack versions of vaccines that go out, misinformation about this. Then there's other levels. Vicks VapoRub will help cure you. You know, there's some, some breathing kinds of nebulizer kinds of things, treatments to put on your face. Um, so there's a variety of these that, that come up. But in any case, vaccines are rushed across the US. They don't work. Um, but, you know, people were desperately trying to get a vaccine. And for me, one thing that stands out is how much uh, so many Americans in 1918 and 19 wanted effective treatments. And it's it's kind of shocking, although, you know, the majority of Americans um, do want treatments now, right? It's not, it's not as if they don't, but but a significant subset who are quite vocal have rejected treatments. And, and you don't have a sense of that in the in the literature from 1918 and 19. You don't have the sense of rejection, wholesale rejection of all treatments. If anything, there's an, a, an embrace of all kinds of outlandish ways of trying to treat this. And you might say that we've seen some of that um, in recent times as well. Um, so th th that, that may be a way that, that human beings attempt to uh, assert some control over something that seems so radically outside their control. And I would also add, you know, if you're thinking about that context, in 1918 and 19, the best estimates are that about 675,000 Americans die uh, from the flu out of a population of about 103 million. Um, by our best estimates right now, um, by mid to late October 2021, 675,000 Americans will have died from this pandemic. Um, then they only had non-pharmaceutical interventions and a rudimentary, that is, you know, all the social distancing and the closure policies and a rudimentary public health infrastructure. Now we've got effective vaccines, you know, a modern, um, modern public health infrastructure, all kinds of knowledge about viruses and how they spread. You know, we've all become amateur epidemiologists over the course of the last what, almost two years. So it is pretty shocking. And I think, you know, you're talking about vaccines, you're, we're talking about sort of looking at this, the current moment through the prism of that past pandemic 100 years ago. It's pretty striking um, that we have so many more tools in our toolkit today, and yet a comparable number of Americans will die. Now, you know, granted, there's 330 or million or so Americans now. So the population is about a third, uh, two thirds larger, but um, that, that no one was predicting this. None of the scholars that I was talking to in February and March of 2020 thought it would be anywhere near that. And in fact, the Trump administration said if it could be kept under 100,000 deaths, um, they would they would count that, you know, a success. They thought that that would be, uh, you know, a kind of a threshold beyond which it was almost impossible to go over. And we're looking at, you know, more than six times that, which is a tragedy. But again, this gets back to that early point about suffering and abstraction. At what point 
are those numbers too big? And we talk about this when we think about military history and you know other kinds of social experiences and political experiences that are so traumatizing and have such large numbers, it's hard to personalize them. Um, and that's really the essential work that I think historians have done so well in giving us social histories of you know, that pandemic. And that's the kind of work we'll be doing for quite a while in, in getting compiling the narratives of this pandemic, frankly. Another topical story was the war in Ukraine. And it just so happens that I interviewed Professor Scott Reynolds Nelson the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. Scott's book, Oceans of Grain, tells the story of the Black Paths, or the routes of, that grain traders took through the Ukraine to the Black Sea and on to the world. It seems as though all of the history we talked about that day had such importance. And here's a short clip to highlight the prescient work that Scott has done. Well, I think what we really need to start with is because, you know, this is the, we're speaking on the, the very day that Russia has invaded the Ukraine, uh, and it's, 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 it's a really sad sight to watch, but your book starts off in Odessa and you talk about these black paths, which are, as you say, ancient trade routes across continents and oceans. Why are these so important for everything and why start the examination in Odessa and in the Ukraine? Right. So the black paths, as they're called, Chorny uh, Shlaki in uh, Ukrainian, are they come first. They, they are ancient. They go back before any empires. 2800 BC, we know that there are these paths that connect grain regions to the coast. And empires tax those pathways in the same way that microbes do. Uh, culture is primarily a set of techniques associated with collecting, preparing, and distributing that bounty. And the, those are the very same corridors that uh, Russia is now invading uh, Ukraine. Odessa is the deep port. It's the jewel of the crown of Ukraine because it's the place where all the grain is gathered uh, for dropping it into the ocean. Well, that's remarkable to think that the same places that uh, Putin is sort of going, the way he's going into Ukraine are the same paths that were taken by traders 10,000 years ago. I mean, the other starting point for the book is Ukraine's unique terroir and geography. Uh, Catherine the Great initiated a major change in Russian thinking that makes the Ukraine so vital to Russia's future. Can you tell us a little bit about her vision and how it changed global commerce? Uh, yeah, so Catherine was greatly influenced by the physiocrats who argued that a grain harvest is central to any empire, but that rather than protecting it with a, you know, the grain with a central ring that consumes, a middle ring that produces, an outer ring that feeds the armies, an empire can succeed by selling grain to other empires. And that's her reason for invading uh, what we now call Ukraine, invading that region, uh, attacking uh, basically the Crimean Khanate and the uh, Ottoman Empire. And that um, that thinking, the idea that the plains are the most important thing, that Ukraine is the most uh, valuable region, is, um, you know, motivates nine wars <laughs> after that. In every case, Russia trying to dominate uh, the northern part of the Black Sea. So it's it's this is what we're seeing today uh, has been happening again and again for uh, literally hundreds of years. The other favorite of listeners was The Silver King, an episode about George Hearst. Hearst was a miner, but he's probably better known as the father of William Randolph Hearst. He's also someone who made it all and then lost it all in a kind of spirit that reflects the era's ruthless entrepreneurship. Here's a clip from that show with Professor Matthew Bernstein, who was a wonderful guest, and he talks about the period's personalities. He doesn't really take bankruptcy too seriously or it's it's as if like you know when he loses a fortune 
in one of his disastrous mining plans, it's not like the end of the world. Whereas I know if I lost millions, I would, you know, I would be beside myself. I wouldn't know what to do. One of his enduring characters seems to be a resilience that not many people have. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, certainly. Um, now, speaking of Gilded Age, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Mark Twain's The Gilded Age. And, you know, one of the uh, themes in that book is you lose a fortune and then you make a fortune. And especially with mining in that time period, there was the ability to do so. Uh, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books uh, actually focused on sort of time periods that were sort of like sweet spots when that you can make fortunes. And the Gilded Age is one of those. Now, uh, yeah, Hearst could find himself $100,000 in debt and be like, all right, all I have to do is go find a new paying mine. And sometime it would take him years and there were disasters. Uh, at one point, one doesn't think of William Randolph Hearst living in a boarding house, but they lost their fortune in the uh, early 1870s. And little Willie and Phoebe had to like live with mom and dad and were bouncing uh, between a uh, boarding house. And George was out there in the wild west and in the mines, you know, like desperately seeking another fortune and ultimately finds one. You know, but uh, he always seemed to have an unshakable belief in his abilities. And even when he was down and out, other miners recognized that George Hurst had sort of like a, he had a natural nose for gold. Like uh, he was one of those people and everyone who was a miner at the time wanted this ability that he could look at a hillside, he could look at a mountain and he could tell you what was in it. He could tell you what it was, what it constituted. Uh, and he was considered the best in the business, and he ultimately proved it. Yeah, your book did a wonderful job of explaining how he found quartz veins and kind of gravitated towards them, which other miners weren't doing. And I think the other thing that really didn't surprise me about him, but really made me think that this was a, 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 a kind of person that I wouldn't mind being around is the harem of friends that he winds up you know, uh, having around him. So Mark Twain, you mentioned, he's one of them, that him and Twain strike up a relationship. I mean... Is Hearst magnetic and is he as much like a, a, a metal prospector as he is a social prospector? Ha. Uh, he had what people called a good vein of humor. And later in life, uh, you know, like he met Mark Twain in Virginia City about 1863. And they were both uh, boys from Missouri who made good. And later in life, Mark Twain uh, and he like, reunite in New York City and Hearst Mansion in Washington, D.C. And Twain, of course, loves to go over there because, you know, you're going to get like the best food. There's going to be a big party. And George will take you, if he likes you, down into the basement and smoke cigars and drink bourbon with you. And of course, he's going to do that with Twain. Twain at the time was actually more of what you call a social prospector than George was because Twain at about I'm going to say 1887, he had lost his fortune through that ridiculous typesetter machine that never quite functioned. And he poured all of his money into there along with his own publishing business, did really well initially, you know, was able to publish uh, uh, Sherman and Grant's memoirs, uh, you know, some of his own books, uh, but it ultimately failed. Whatever the case, he comes to Twain for a small loan. And no one knows exactly how much 
uh, George gave him. But George does explain to a number of people, you know, with these loans that he would always give people that they didn't strike it lucky, that could have been me, so I should divide. Uh, now, he always manages, back to your question, to get terrific talent around him. You know, if it's a, a mining manager or if it's a cattle ranches, uh, he is a sociable guy that people gravitate to even without um, the fact that, you know, like, yeah, he can loan you money or buy you dinner uh, because he's actually very affable. And he was able to, uh, for a guy who sometimes didn't seem to be the brightest, who could oftentimes put his foot in his mouth, he was able to attract people like uh, Phoebe, his wife, you know, who was a, a smarty pants and a teacher and, you know, like a wonderful human being. His son, who was, you know, say what you want about William Randolph Hearst, he was a linguistic genius. Uh, his son must have looked up to him like he was some sort of God. Here's a guy who just like came from almost nothing, you know, like out there in the outskirts of Missouri and, you know, was able to like rise so spectacularly high. He didn't, George Hearst didn't initially like win an election to become United States Senator. He was appointed by the governor because everyone seemed to agree he should be, despite him having almost no experience with politics. The other thing about that episode with Matthew Bernstein on the Silver King, George Hurst, was that I completely screwed up the recording. What I mean when I say that is, is that I overlaid the two audio tracks, my audio track and his, as well as the music audio tracks, into one big mess. So at the outset of the show, all you heard was music and garbled voices. And if you downloaded the shows really quickly, you would have heard all that. But I scrambled as quick as I could, realizing that I had made this mistake, pulled the shows from Spotify and from Apple Podcasts and got, you know, a fixed or an edited version online as soon as I could. I really have a lot more respect for anyone who produces audio nowadays because it is, now I can see at least, it's, it's a really arduous process by which you need to be on top of just about every second of recording. So to record these shows, it often takes me about an hour to re-listen to the whole podcast and make the edits. And some of the edits are substantial, some of them are, are, are not that big at all. But ultimately, it takes around an hour to pr produce the show again. The other blooper I had was when Ben Wetzel joined me on the show to talk about Theodore Roosevelt. His book uh, about religion in Roosevelt was just out. And Ben kindly came on to do an interview about, about his book. And uh, he kindly also offered to interview me. And there were some tech problems. I don't know what exactly happened, but we had to re-record the, the whole show all over again. And Ben did a heroic job of coming back on air and, and recording his portion of the interview again. Most of the bloopers that I can tell you about, and I won't, I won't share them with you, are me cursing into the microphone. I'm usually trying to say something, I stumble over my words, and I, you know, shout. There are a few disappointments as well. There are two topics, in fact, that I really wanted to talk about this first year. The first was about music. You know, I picked the theme song for the show, which is John Philip Sousa, mainly because it was the only song that was in copyright. The song that I really wanted to have was Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony, which is a really prominent song from the late 19th century and a really wonderful 
uh, way of uh, showing off the differences in musical composers. Beach was a woman, and also the sort of international dimensions of music as well, because the song is sort of about Irishness. I really wanted to talk about this. I haven't gotten around to it, and I hope this is something that I can do next year. And here's a clip from Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony, just to give you a sense of the theme I was originally thinking of. The other thing is I want to talk about food. It's one of the things that came up so much. And although we talked about cocktails and we talked about alcohol, we didn't really talk about some of the food of the period. What did they eat at those big parties on Fifth Avenue? And and, and what was going on in Delmonico's? I mean, what is what exactly is Lobster New Burger or Baked Alaska? So my hope is I can get a food historian on to talk about that element of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. So if you know anyone that can talk about Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony, or anyone that can speak to food in the Gilded Age, please do get in touch with suggestions. I'd love to hear them. Now, the show has been well-supported by publishers, authors, scholars, all of them donating their resources and time. And I want to thank all the guests, publicists, and listeners for making this podcast a joy to produce. It's kept me in touch with colleagues during the pandemic, and my hope is, is that during the next year, we get to do even more than 30 shows. I've said this before, but it bears saying again, if you have an idea or you have research that you've done and you'd like to talk it over and share with the podcast listeners, please do reach out. I'll be doing some more storytelling episodes this year and all good ideas are welcome. Thanks again for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.